Hello, all you dreamers, optimists, and junior Tomorrow Knots. Welcome to the Tomorrowland Times podcast, the unofficial home for fans of Disney's 2015 Tomorrowland movie, its prequel novel Before Tomorrowland, and the alternate reality game that introduced us to its fictional universe all the way back in 2013, The Optimist. I'm Nick. And I'm Hasten. And this is the sixth episode in our 12-part series in which we'll be taking a deep dive into Brad Bird, Damon Lindelof, and Jeff Jensen's sci-fi family adventure and budding cult classic. We made it halfway, Dick. This is the halfway mark. We're six out of 12. And before we dive into the section of the movie we'll be covering today, Hasten, I have a follow-up from a previous question that we asked only two episodes ago. I had pondered... If the Blast from the Past store in the movie was related to the Blast from the Past store down on Magnolia Boulevard right here in Burbank. And having recently visited to do some unrelated shopping, I got into a conversation with one of the employees that works at Blast from the Past, one of the longtime staples of the store. And as the topic turned to Tomorrowland, as it often does when you're talking to me, he uh, wouldn't let me go until he said, wait a minute. You're a fan of Tomorrowland. You know the shop in the movie is named after this shop, right? And I said, well, I've long suspected. But then he said, even further, you know, Keegan-Michael Key's character? I said, yes, of course, Hugo Gernsbach. He said, well, brown guy with dreadlocks. And then he points at himself being himself a brown guy with dreadlocks. And he said that that character was at least visually inspired by him, an actual employee of the real Blast from the Past Superstore. So needless to say, Hasten, my mind was blown by that revelation. Here we are five years later, and you're still discovering new, almost six years later, and you're still discovering new connections to the real world from this film. It's more than an arg. It's a, if there's not a game, we bring the game to it. Not when, when we're not even looking for it, that just happened to come up organically in conversation. So if you want to meet the gentleman who inspired the Hugo Gernsbach audio animatronic character played by Keegan-Michael Key, just go down and visit the Blast from the Past store on Magnolia Boulevard in sunny Burbank, California, as they used to say. Beautiful Burbank, California. Absolutely. The runtime we're covering today from the movie is 54 minutes and 55 seconds to one hour and five minutes and 15 seconds, or just over 10 minutes of the movie. So having just lingered on Athena's sweet reminisce into a low fade to black, a hard cut now finds Casey waking up with a jolt to the sound of their stolen truck peeling away, leaving her stranded in the middle of a road. Now, Athena's methods as a recruiter have come under fire a lot over the years, but Aside from their contributions to the mystery on the front half of the movie, I do think that there's some method to her madness. As we'll later discover, all was far from well between Frank and Athena, and any attempts to appeal to his generosity while she was present would surely be met with antagonism. I think Athena, leaving Casey stranded to meet Frank alone, was her hedging her bet that she would have a better chance of reaching out to him without their troubled past pulling focus. Hasten, what do you think about Athena's unorthodox recruitment methods? 
Well, okay, so you look at the timeline, right? It's been 20 years at this point in time. 25 years since her exile, because she was exiled after Frank was. That's right. She was exiled. It's been 25 years. Now, mind you, she was still probably actively, she was not a recruiter at that point in time, I assume, after the 84 thing got completely shut down. We do know that Nix attempted to disassemble her, and that would be when she theoretically escaped who knows how exactly that went down. We see Frank being escorted out later in the film in a flashback, but we don't really know the exact circumstances that saw Athena cast out of Tomorrowland. I think she's a woman on the run. She's trying to do whatever she can to fulfill her mission of kicking off this journey that is not just about herself, but about just getting somebody back in. And she knows that Frank has the key, literally the keys to make that happen. And she has hedged her very last bet on Casey, as we've learned in the previous sequence, I do still get curious about what those other recruits looked like, and particularly how how many of those were distributed and how long before. Because she says she made it out with nearly a dozen, but over 25 years, how long was she watching candidates and how far flung across the globe did she go? There are these distinct chapters in this story because it spans such a great amount of time where you can imagine these adventures in really different distinct combinations of you've got this period of time before everything happens at the 64 World's Fair. And then you've got Frank getting in and having this childhood relationship with Athena, potentially many adventures. I remember that was one thing that Jeff Jensen talked to us about when we sat down with him was that he imagined, you know, many years worth of young Frank and Athena adventures between when we see them in 64 and when Frank is exiled in 84. Certainly, that chapter looks very different from the next one for Athena, which would take place, it would be five years after 84 that she was exiled. After Frank is exiled, you've got Athena sans Frank trying to deal with what's going on with Nyx. Whether or not he's still using her as a recruiter, we don't know. But You've got that distinct period of her on her own that then transitions into the real world. So you've got the exiled Athena, and that's 25 years of adventures she can have all on her own, or perhaps even in tandem with the other recruiters we know are out there, like we suspect Wallace from The Optimist was. So Athena's history represents such an interesting segmentation. There are many chapters that I think are rife for many fan fiction explorations for everyone listening out there to pour their imaginations into. I mean, I mean, not even to mention that, right, but looking at sort of the history of if you really want to do the deep dive, right, in the history of the Walt Disney Company, and, you know, you create this fun connection with the opening of Epcot Center with just two years before the big reveal and, like, what the plan there was and how that was probably used as a plan to be used as some sort of recruitment center and then going off the rails. There's just a ton of fun tie-ins to do especially with that early 80s, you know, surge in technology and surge in, you know, sort of this, you know, uh, oh, I don't need to live in the future because the future exists here today. I have a computer. I have in 1987, I have a CD-ROM drive. Who needs the future? Like, it's all right here. Right. And Athena is on the sidelines this whole time doing this tangential mission to save tomorrow. 
So needless to say, I think that once you put into context what Athena has been through, particularly with Frank, I don't think it's unreasonable, particularly after a lot of experience over 25 years attempting to appeal to people with this really big ask. I'm going to say that the way that seems strange to us, the audience, of her recruiting Casey, sort of leaving her on her own to slowly discover what this is all about is the result of all that experimentation and the full knowledge that if Frank is the only gateway that she can rely on back to Tomorrowland for whoever she ends up giving this pin to, it's going to be something that she can set all the conditions into motion. These two people need to meet, but if I'm there, it's going to complicate things. I can insert myself when I think that connection has been made, but I think leaving them alone to discover their connection without her is actually a, uh, a good plan once you know everything that's going on. As we'll find out in a bit, the hollow projector is a great, great reveal to Casey how Athena and Frank are connected. And I love this sort of like surprise of like, oh, she hasn't changed, but he has grown older, which is obvious, right? But there's a really great reveal in when she's fiddling with his stuff and she's looking at it at that sort of like connection. When Casey is now stranded in the middle of nowhere, she doesn't have any of this context. And she's just looking around this dirt road and she sees a mailbox that's stamped Walker. So having heard that name from Athena just prior, she knows she's at the very least in the right place. So she leaps this locked fence that's marked with a big no trespassing sign without a second thought. And this is where Giacchino begins to lay in some mysterious strings as we pan up to reveal a CCTV camera among the trees. So he's definitely watching. We've noticed that, but she hasn't noticed yet. Behind the brush, we see the Walker barn once again, which we previously glimpsed in Frank's jetpack trial flashback. It's a fair bit more worn down now on the outside, but we start to notice these idiosyncratic bits of technology spilling out from within. Uh, Casey passes a bright red combine harvester, what would have originally been a throwback to young Frank's automaton intro, but now serves as its own setup for her eventual method of gaining access to the fortress. A fortress whose rural environment brings us into the location station. The hover rail will be arriving in one minute. The Walker Farm was not shot with existing buildings. That house was built completely from scratch by the production wow. on Faulkner Farm in Enderby, British Columbia, Canada. A pretty impressive feat of production design, I'd say. Yeah, I, I would have just figured that that barn would have been there. I mean, it makes sense when you see the deleted scenes and uh, having the scenes with Frank's dad and like being inside the barn and whatever else, it makes sense they would build out sort of a full physical set for that. Right. In that sequence, you do have a lot more moving from the outside to the inside and vice versa. Whereas here, you know, if it was just this segment, you don't actually have too much going in and out. So you could have done it in a traditional way. But uh, no, they were able to design it exactly to their specifications. And it's only shown briefly at the beginning in Little Frank's flashback. But I think it's enough to cement it in the audience's mind that it is the same space once Casey arrives. And as Casey approaches the house, she's greeted by everyone's favorite holographic dog, Glitchy, 
which is his canonical name, according to an interview that we conducted with Damon Lindelof for our first anniversary commentary. I think it's a shame that a, a little clear plastic glitchy didn't come with the Frank Walker reaction figure. Glitchy's a really good boy, and he deserves a little bit more love. Does Frank's holographic dog have a name? Uh, glitchy. Glitchy. Wonderful. <laughs> We're going to put that on the wiki. Please. Casey uses her considerable powers of observation to deduce that the chained guard dog is a hologram by noticing he left no paw prints in the dirt she had just herself scattered. Hasten, do you remember that Glitchy got his own TV spot? I do remember this, yes. I think uh, that was one of the best decisions they made in the marketing. At that time of release, that means Glitchy got one more TV spot than Athena did. Tips for tomorrow. Beware of dog. <laughs> Your paw prints. Cool. Disney's Tomorrowland. Rated PG. Friday. So Casey attempts to plead with Frank through the door, but on sight of the pin she produces, he activates one of his many home defense mechanisms to blast her off the porch. What do you think he's doing there? Is that a sound wave? Is it a light wave? The script describes it as a pulse of light. It's more like a sonar wave in the movie. It kind of ripples through the air. What, what technology do you think he's leveraging? And where is it being shot from? It's probably built into the door, is my guess. And it's probably just some sort of like pulse wave generator that's like so strong, right? Like you feel a firework when it goes off. Same concept, but just much, much stronger. And somehow built into a very old wooden door. That's the more impressive part to me. Forget the technology. He hid it in an old wood door. Maybe it's coming up from the ground. That's true. Maybe. <laughs> like at an angle. I'm going to need those schematics. If you're too close to the door, you get sucked into the door. So you have to do it from the side. If this film was a success, Disney Publishing would have put out the Tomorrowland Visual Dictionary and there would have been a cross section of the house and it would have laid out all the booby traps. Take you where? To the place I saw when I touched this. So Frank's intro is shot really low, just on his feet. He's picking up the fallen pin, and then he's obscured behind the flare of the sun. To me, that says this was clearly shot as a re big reveal moment for the character, and possibly without too much other coverage, as it was apparently not re-edited to de-emphasize that feeling of this is the first time we're seeing somebody once the opening bookend had been added to the film and we saw his face from the word go right at the beginning of the movie. So his first and only line of questioning is, where did you get this? Where is she? That sting of 30 years past is clearly uh, still fresh for him. And he gets right to the point. Wherever you came from, kid, go back. No, I want you to take me there. What I saw... What you saw is gone. This, what you're looking for, it doesn't exist anymore. No, I feel, I feel like, like I have to go. Like, I, I'm supposed to go. Why? Because they're saving a seat on the rocket ship? Just for you? What you saw was a commercial that was recorded decades ago. It was an invitation that never went out because the damn party got canceled. You are not supposed to do anything. You've been manipulated to feel like you're part of something incredible. Like you were special. But you weren't. You're not. From a character perspective, Haston, this is a really juicy moment for him because he starts talking about Casey, but he very clearly ends talking about himself. He's he's 
projecting his own personal experience onto the situation. And it is applicable to Casey, but I'd say even more so, it's applicable to us, isn't it? Absolutely. So when we first saw a clip of this scene, we were sitting at New York Comic Con as one of the only people who cared about this Tomorrowland panel. Lots of things are rushing through my mind. Like the first thing was, oh, this is George Clooney. Like, wow, this is a legit film. This is going to be awesome. This is going to be the biggest thing ever. Not only is it George Clooney, it's cranky old man George Clooney, which is even better than regular George Clooney. He does this diatribe to Casey, who we just see laying there because we didn't see the context of, or maybe we did and I just don't remember. But at that moment, after The Optimist had ended a year earlier, this felt like it was directly like projected for us. Like we were in this exact moment, right? George Clooney reached through the screen and was putting his hand on our our shoulder and saying, you guys need to realize what's not about to happen. (laughs) For me, that was like the first thing of like, you know, we, we didn't get anything else, right? Like I remember we were over at a friend's house till like 9 p.m. thinking, oh, it's Super Bowl Sunday. They're doing an ad. This is it. The game's starting again. Like, this is the start of that game. But in our defense, it wasn't just that they were doing an ad. They had put up a countdown clock, which is a classic alternate reality game technique. Absolutely. And then we didn't get it. And then we go to New York and we have literally an exclusive clip of George Clooney yelling at us about how... We're not supposed to do anything. (laughs) This isn't for you. You felt like you were part of something incredible, but you weren't. And now you're not. But through your ingenuity and continuing to this very day on this very podcast, we continue to write our own future and make it something. Whether the party was canceled or not. (laughs) That's right. And thankfully, because of the conversations that we've been lucky to have with the creative teams on both the film and The Optimist, we know that this life parallel was completely unintentional in both directions. It was always written into the script like this. And that was not something that was intentionally being played on in The Optimist experience, because when they were building it, they couldn't have known whether or not there was going to be anything else or how the studio marketing department was going to carry that torch. So it was just this perfect storm of circumstances that led to us having this bizarre center seat for George Clooney's character's feelings toward the subject matter itself that we had lived not a year before. And we're in the process, the first time we saw the scene, we were in the process of coming to terms with the fact that this was too real. I don't think it was quite clear to us, even in that moment, because here we were still rushing out into the streets of New York thinking they wanted us to go to Tesla's apartment because they had inserted a preview of the book in our goodie bag at the panel that featured the exact street address. And we thought, oh, this is it. So we kept looking under rocks and little did we know that George Clooney had shown us the exact clip we needed to see, but we weren't ready to hear yet at New York Comic Con 2014. (laughs) There is a short little cut line from Frank in the screenplay here where he underlines, yeah, it's real. And it was amazing. But then it changed. It all changed. And while that is just reiterating information that you can glean from elsewhere, I think reading him saying it directly speaks a little bit more to his frustration with Nick's in particular. This is him talking about what Nick's did without actually talking about what Nick's did yet. It's not time for him to say that. But if that line had been left in, it would kind of speak to that seething resentment that still lives in him. So that's a no? 
So, of course, he slams the door on Casey. And we've got this lovely match cut to the night where Casey is sitting stubbornly on his porch in the pouring rain. And she sticks her tongue out at the camera and she knows he's watching him through it. Uh, But something else catches her eye. Among these vines on the house's paneling, wires are wrapping around the building. So she follows them and uh, her curiosity is completely unbothered by the falling rain. These wires converge at what looks like a makeshift cell phone tower covered in different satellite dishes and antenna, whirring with the squeaks of incoming signals. Intrigued, she thinks for a moment and then turns back to that combine. Uh-oh. I really like this slow reveal of Casey putting the information together. This is a really intriguing location. This is an intriguing concept for a character, and we're starting to see the prison that he's built for himself. We're starting to see the build-out of what he's bolted on to his past and what his life has become, and we're learning as she's learning, and just the visual storytelling here is very satisfying to me, getting that one little block at a time. After she determines what's going on with this whole satellite thing, I love the sort of Giacchino soundtrack here of like, you can listen to her thinking through it with the music. It's fantastic. And then she sees the combine. So what does she do? She sets the combine on fire, right? So you've got Frank inside the house, sipping his cup of coffee, watching the news. The alarm system starts wailing, right? What I love about this is that she has one playbook, and it's this one. She did it at NASA. She's doing it here, right? It's the same playbook, like cause a distraction, distract him, and get what you want. And potentially blow something up. Right. <laughs> so she's Casey the Destructor, and that that manifests itself in every way she attempts to get wherever she's trying to go. And uh, it certainly works here, because Frank spins around to his six-screened home security monitor, and he sees that combine on fire. And he curses under his breath and he begins to unlatch this, you know, paranoid series of locks on his door playing right into her hand, of course. And then he grabs this fire extinguisher and he goes full Elsa on that combine. And I just love this prop. It looks like something straight out of Ghostbusters. It's it's akin to the jetpack that he made as a kid. It's it's like a fire extinguisher, but it's got all these other parts bolted onto it. And it's just a really great piece of prop design. And they did have it on display Uh, before the release of the movie. So we were able to see that puppy up close, which was nice. I'm really sad that we didn't get the through the full through line of the combine with the deleted scenes in the front. Yeah. I mean, obviously it's in the dreamers cut, but still I do hope that all of those young Frank deleted scenes are eventually released on some kind of physical format and aren't streaming exclusives anymore because you know, you never get to really see it in its full glory when it's on the movies anywhere platform and fingers crossed, maybe it'll even be in 4k Once it comes to Disney Plus, that is still yet to be determined. Oh, you little. You know, I can call the cops anytime. Anytime. You help. I'm I'm giving you five seconds. So we have Casey in the house. She's locked Frank out of her own house. He's banging on the door, which is great. This whole scene. You get this, she laughs, the audience laughs with her. That was something that I remember in like every time we saw this, right? This whole play out is so satisfying. Yeah, it's a little bit Wile E. Coyote and the Roadrunner. You know, you've got uh, two considerable forces slamming up against each other. And you're right. That was a huge reaction from the audience. You know, you've got Frank 
realizing what he's just done by falling into her distraction, he spins around and there she is in his doorway slamming the door shut. It's just a great series of moments because he runs up to it. He starts screaming at her and then he gets blasted back on his back, just like he did to her earlier. And we cut back inside and she's just giving this hilarious little laugh under her breath. (laughs) And yeah, it just always got a big reaction from the audience. If you touch anything in there, that's exactly what I'll do. But of course, she's going to touch everything. And uh, she goes right for this trombone slidey doohickey that turns out to be a hollow projector. And here she's treated to a flashback recording of young Frank and Athena in a lab. Oh, come on. You didn't think that was funny? You're recording this. I forget you to laugh. I want to, you know, have it for posterity. I laughed. You smiled. Smile's not a laugh. Everyone laughs. It's a biological need. Actually, it isn't. Sleep is a biological need. Never seen you sleep either. In this scene, they debate laughter uh, being a biological need. And Athena denies that it is, of course. But young Frank decides that he's committed to one day making Athena laugh. He's putting it on his bucket list. Of course, Athena, as a robot, seemingly limited to the functionality of her programming, would assume that laughter is not a biological need. For her, it just doesn't compute. It's not part of what she was built with. Now, this seems like a cute little debate, but it's laying the groundwork for an existential turn of character that Athena will complete with Frank at the film's end. It becomes clear at the end of this recording that he still doesn't know the truth about her at this point, and it's starting to weigh on her. I also like that in the background of this scene, we can see slick Tomorrowland versions of the teleporter hoop that's in Frank's living room, which will come back to very good use later. And we'll discuss that fight scene next week. Well, sooner or later, I'm going to make you laugh. Until you do, I'm not going to stop trying. Maybe you should. What? Stop trying. Why? So we when we went to Disneyland and we went to the press junket for the Blu-ray, um, which we got invited to, which was awesome, we actually had a chance to sit down with Raffi Cassidy and Thomas Robinson, the kids in the movie, and they remembered a lot more to this sequence than that was shown to us in the film. Now, we haven't found any like production documents and it's not in the screenplay to corroborate that, but it's interesting that they might be just remembering Brad Bird making them do a large number of takes, or we might actually had something that didn't make it into the movie here. Right. That's still a big question mark. It is possible that they shot variations of this that just aren't reflected in the one shooting draft of the script that we have. But I also do know from talking to other people involved with the production that one of the additional reasons they decided to reframe and restructure the opening of the movie to start with George Clooney was that so much of the drama on the farm was hinged on this kid playing young Frank. And they were just, I think, worried that the performance wasn't quite where it needed to be to open the movie. It was it was perfectly fine in the context of the scenes in the finished film to them, but it wasn't quite there to be the opening uh, character that you're supposed to connect with. So my guess would be that, yeah, it might just be that Brad needed to get quite a few takes from these two to make it feel as natural as it does. Because I do think that the version of the flashback in the movie really works. I mean, their interaction feels quite natural. 
and they've got great chemistry. Talking to these kids was a hoot too, because it's always a reminder that, you know, actor acting kids are literally just kids, which is just great. And, you know, they're playing geniuses, both of them. So you you almost expect some kind of precocious genius sitting across from you, but you're talking to them. No, they're just actors. They're just kids. They're normal kids that happen to be in extraordinary professions. Um, there was this one, I think a little part of it, but there was this one scene we spent like a hundred takes or something filming um, in like this laboratory mm. as a flashback. And... We put so much work into that, and I thought it was a really cool and kind of funny bonding moment in the scene. And I think it would have been great to have that in the movie. And it wasn't the one that was in the movie, it was a different one? Because they gave you the one flashback, but it was really short, right? Yeah, it was just an extended version of that. Like It was like maybe four times that length. It was like the entire scene. It's quite an important um, storyline, because when Casey sees that she realize that there's a connection. Mm. So I think that's a, a quite an important storyline. So Casey really takes this in and starts to put two and two together about what's going on with Frank and Athena. And she puts down the hollow projector and she turns to Frank's mantelpiece. Um, although for me personally, I don't think I would stop at one flashback. I would probably try and cycle through that thing before Frank breaks in and tells me to stop using it. I want to see everything that's on there. Uh, however big that futuristic hard drive is and how many videos it can hold. Uh, And in the screenplay, all of those earlier Athena recollections originally lived here. So I think it would would have been more along the lines of Casey cycling through a couple and then landing on the lab test scene as we see it in the movie. On the mantelpiece, Casey sees these pictures of a life in the years between when we left Frank and when we see him now. And I thought it was a really nice touch to have him reconcile with his father, even just tangentially through some of these set pieces that we can see, you know, a a Frank older than young Frank and younger than modern Frank uh, embracing his father. And, you know, it's just one of those peripheral details that makes you feel good about the story, that there are at least some happy endings here. And even with losing a lot of the dad at the front of the movie, this still really worked in the final cut for me. Absolutely. Because, you know, the one taste you got of it was of this completely uh, tumultuous relationship. And so to see that that him coming back didn't represent the end of that. I mean, I can certainly imagine a whole story about the father just completely, you know, in that deleted scene when he picks up the pamphlet that Casey is about to find on the mantelpiece right now for the World's Fair that says, I'm not giving up. The father gives this look like, oh my God, I've pushed my son too far. And I think there's an immediate look of regret. And so when that was still in the movie, you can definitely draw that through line where there was probably a dad trying to find his kid and literally had nothing to go on. And he comes back 20 years later, you know, from 64 to 84. Now, of course, there may have been intermittent trips back and forth that we're not documenting, but still the idea that at some point in the 80s, um, they reconciled after his exile. It's just a sweet little grace note on the universe of this story. What's interesting about this pamphlet is it's one of the only things that's an actual World's Fair item that's in the movie. They didn't re- they didn't redesign it right. in order to like be they're worried about clearance issues or whatever. No, this is an actual World's Fair 
pamphlet, which is fantastic. And still, I believe, easily obtainable on eBay for anyone that needs to put it on their Tomorrowland shelf, which I say confidently knowing I have a few of them already. The best part about a lot of this fair stuff is that they made millions of it and it's not super desirable yet. All the stuff that's kind of not directly connected to Disney is still pretty inexpensive to purchase. Definitely add it to your collection. I have a couple as well. Because they were so mass produced, they don't hold the same value as some of the rarer items that were either snatched up or thrown away. You know, these were all meant to be keepsakes. And so you've got them all over the country from people who now have eBay and can easily list them. So this is a great way to start collecting, uh, particularly if you're a fan of Tomorrowland. Uh, There are a couple vintage items that actually did make their way in and weren't custom made for the movie. So Casey's considering this pamphlet and then behind her, her eye is drawn to this glowing room in the distance. And she sort of slowly makes her way in and she realizes that this is Frank's monitor room, not just a room filled with monitors, but he's hooked into the signal of the monitor. Of course, the audience doesn't know what that is now, but this is our first taste of what is actually going on in this story. It's completely new to Casey and it's all of these TVs tuned into world events, satellite views, maps, the countdown clock, and this bold set of red numbers that reads 100%. So absolute, something is absolutely certain. She doesn't know what it is. The audience doesn't know what it is. But we're transitioning here from what was almost exclusively this mystery story into finally getting some concrete answers about what this movie is trying to say. And in the screenplay, we had another deleted instance of the pin's interference that occurred here, where Casey holds it up to the monitor screens, which then get covered in static. And the screenplay also describes a shot that explicitly shows her noticing the cables from the monitor leading out the window to the antennas that she saw earlier. I think we put two and two together as the audience, and we don't necessarily need that spelled out for us, that the thing she saw outside connects to the thing that she's seeing inside. So we pan around an inquisitive Casey to see out of focus in the background, Frank pop out of a monster style secret hatch in his staircase. Could this house get any cooler? So many neat things. Also really attends to his concern around Nick sending his goons to get him. Now, as Frank enters the monitor room, we've officially begun my favorite scene in the movie. So I thought it deserved to be broken down line by line as we also move with Casey out of the realm of mystery and into the realm of hard sci-fi concepts. So Casey says, How do you ever leave a place like that? And then Frank lets the bomb drop. Because they threw me out! That was not immediately clear to everyone. All the audience knew at this point in the story was that Frank was there as a kid, and now he's in the middle of nowhere in New York as an adult. His facade starts to crack a little bit. And this is where we're seeing, oh, this is why he's bitter. That thing he said to her earlier was actually him talking about himself. That's not something you could know on a first viewing in the middle of it. But here is where you're given that piece of information. Okay, this guy's cast out. He saw something amazing, and he felt that same feeling that Casey did. So the way in which these two characters are linked becomes clear in this moment. And it really does sink in for Casey in this moment too. I think it, I think it's clicking for her in her head and he offers a little bit more. They threw me out and they locked every door back in. 
I admire Casey's presence of mind in this moment because my gut instinct in this situation would be to hone in on that word they. You know, we don't know it's Nick's yet, but he says they threw me out. And my immediate curiosity would be about who's the they. But she is clearly a lot smarter than I am. And she jumps right to what she already knows. She compares with the information, the very little information that she's been able to get out of Athena and says, Was it because you built that something that you shouldn't have? Frank's legitimately surprised about that. He says, Who told you that? Even though I think he can probably figure it out if he paused for a moment and realized the only person that she's been talking to is Athena. So he knows exactly who gave her that pin. I think in this particular moment, he is surprised that Athena is playing out more information than maybe she has before. But given that it's her last pin, she kind of has to. Right. And Frank doesn't necessarily know how many she escaped with at this point or what how she's been operating, how much, how much more she's going to continue to do after Casey. But her having given Casey this much information immediately kind of shows Frank that she's different somehow, right? So he's starting to jive onto that, but he's going to feel it out. He's still got his guard up, as you would. If you've been holed up away and pretty much sworn to not say anything under pain of death, you know, he's not allowed to talk about any of this. So he's still feeling this out. And when she immediately makes the leap by saying, is that it, the something, pointing to his monitor and the percentage being displayed, that's when Frank realizes, okay, if you think you can go down this rabbit hole, I'm not going to stop you. And he decides, okay, we are going to do a little thought experiment. And this is where we really get into the juicy stuff. Because Frank says... If I could tell you the date, the exact date that you're going to die, would you want to know? So he's posing a classic philosophical thought experiment. And this thematically branches out into so many interpretive possibilities for what this movie is actually about. You've got the societal implications of focusing on doom and gloom and focusing on what the monitor is broadcasting, which is the increasing inevitability of your self-destruction. The monitor is a self-fulfilling prophecy, not only because it's only showing one possible future, and therefore the percentage is getting higher and higher till it hits 100, but it's also the personal level of there are different ways people react to the concept of death. It's specific to the culture you grow up in. It's specific to the type of person you are, the priorities that you have. But certainly when you're talking about how it fits into this movie, you've got a villain who is explicitly in denial of death at all. And so you've got a hero who's willing to pose this particular question, what would that effect be if you knew when you were going to die? And then you've got a villain who's rallying against death, that he's rallying to extend his life in any way that he can. You know, he's got his magic milkshake that keeps him as young as he looked in 1964 when they finally find him. And that ties in to the concept of him being someone who stigmatizes failure and is therefore, in his own way, as a scientist, an enemy of the scientific process because our heroes are redefining the importance of embracing failure and learning from the past without succumbing to it. And so all of this is tied up in the ideas that are made explicit here. You are dealing with existential dread. You are dealing with the big topic, which will become clearer as we move forward. But like so many stories throughout history that hinge their drama on the conflict between free will 
and fate. And this movie is no different. It is asking a large question about determinism and free will. So Casey just comes out of the gate questioning the premise of the thought experiment at its core. She says, how would you know? Because she knows it's not possible. And he just says, let's say that I did. And she's, she's not having it. She's like, are you a psychic? What's your basis for, you know, whatever. This is a stupid hypothetical. And Frank implores her to use her imagination. Let's accept that there is a world where I know with absolute certainty the exact time of your death. Now, you want me to tell you or not? And her reaction is super fast here. She tackles a really big concept and kind of breaks it down to its component parts to determine her priority on this question. She says, Of course I would. Who wouldn't? But what if accepting my death is what causes it? So the answer is yes. I would want you to tell me. But I wouldn't believe you. So she is attempting to reconcile this paradox of a concept in her head. And she's doing it rather quickly. And she comes to a fairly brilliant conclusion already. Obviously, the ramifications of that are going to continue to play out through her journey. But she's taken this idea of, if I accept my death, is it that acceptance that will ironically cause it? And if so, I have to believe what you're saying. But in my belief, am I bringing it about in a way that I wouldn't if I didn't? And so she has decided to round that square by saying that I want you to tell me, but I'm not going to believe what you tell me, which is a pretty advanced solution to have so quickly and right before our eyes. And I think it's just such a great character defining moment for her. What a unique, strange parallel, like from a personal perspective that we underwent with the last year, this collective global challenge that we faced over the last year that almost kind of presented this hypothetical, you know, in person. This is one of those scenes where I think that the audience, when they saw it, because, you know, reading a lot of reviews at the time, there was this dismissiveness of this entire scene because it felt so scripted and just so ready to go. But there's a lot of hard sci-fi insight into this that I think that people were just very dismissive of because it presented it in this not just non-serious way, but in this way of, no, no, Casey has thought about this stuff and she has decided that... Knowing when something is going to end is fine, but that's not the battle. The battle is changing that. The fact that that it was so dismissive of this conversation during the time kind of plays into this monitor inevitability-ness that sort of happened. Oh, well, this is a hard sci-fi thing that they tried to resolve really quickly. And it's like, yeah, the answer is, is that you are told, hey, you're going to probably, you know, this is probably going to happen to you. Like, do you want to actually fix it or not? Right. And you're instantly getting how not only are Frank and Casey linked, but this is how they're different. This is where they need each other, where Frank is so confident in this algorithm that he regrettably has contributed to that has created this monitor that he's now all consumed with in the same way that Nix is on the other side. He has succumbed to the inevitability of the future. And everyone else has gone along with it because I believe that the increase in that monitor's percentage, the percentage of the inevitability, is representative of this global lack of hope, this global lack of imagining anything other than this inevitability. And so it does start to feed in on itself. And going back to the larger existential question we posed about Casey in the last episode, she simply doesn't 
accept that in this battle between free will and fate, where Frank has resigned himself to the fate that he himself helped predict, she, even in the premise of this simple thought experiment, rejects the premise because it is built on this idea that I can't change the outcome. And so she is firmly on the side of free will, and she is an agent of free will. And that simple belief in the unlimited possibilities of once we know we can change it. It's not that once we know we're resigned to it, if we choose to be resigned to it, she is bringing it back to the level of choice. And as the matrix so beautifully underlines, the problem is choice. And so the fact that she still believes and has now been brought together with Frank, she has the knowledge and the opportunity. We see this flicker on the screen. Don't we like make our own destiny and stuff? And as Frank opens his mouth to explain it for what has got to be the 20th time, suddenly he sees behind her all the monitors flicker just for a moment. And those images of the apocalypse are replaced with more pleasant imagery like blue skies and clouds. Casey doesn't see it, but Frank does, and it stops him cold. That's the moment that he realizes he has been playing into the system. He doesn't know the ramifications of it yet. He doesn't know why it's happening yet. Because quite frankly, he doesn't know the extent to which Nix has taken advantage of the monitor and in what ways he's using it. What Frank knows is it's got this good skeleton that can reasonably predict things. He is not yet hip to the idea that it's also projecting this one narrow thing. And in that projection has driven us all towards that inevitability, rather than starting with this wide swath of possibilities and saying we could go out in any direction. She has immediately made the universe of possibilities open up in this one direction, even though on the monitor we see it only goes down to 99.9994, which I love that the the name of this track that Giacchino gave it was the top 0.006%, which is great because it puts Casey in this top 0.006% simply by believing that we aren't out of options and saying we can find a way. Now, she could have believed that as she seemingly did on her own out in the middle of nowhere. But until she got to the point where her optimism met the opportunity to enact that optimism, she didn't move the needle. There was no flicker because she wouldn't have had the ability to exercise her imagination. And so now the fact that these two have been brought together by Athena means that, okay, there's not a big chance but a door that was previously closed has been opened because these two have come together. And so that's what I love about this. You've got so many people who interpreted the sort of dramatic structure of this movie as being about this chosen one, because that's how Athena talks about Casey. You're special, you're this. But when we ask the question that the movie itself is asking in its setup of this pretty advanced concept, what makes someone special? And with Casey, what makes her special is that she hasn't given up, which will eventually become the rallying call for all the recruiters at the end of the movie. It's not giving up opens up a world of possibilities. Because once you accept an inevitable fate, you have said free will doesn't exist. It's not even a statement on the metaphysics of the universe. It's simply a statement on what you are allowing yourself to have access to. And as we talked about last week, you know, in kind of our long, you know, exit diatribe, like, I feel like this exact point is sort of where we're at with society right now, literally right now. Like, it is just phenomenal 
like, you know, as part of this podcast, going in and rewatching it and sort of seeing this dynamic of, are we willing to accept the fate? Can we change it? Right now, obviously, we're not talking, we weren't talking about 100% doom and gloom with something like COVID, right? In the real world, we don't have a monitor telling us that, except the metaphorical parallels of the monitor, which to me become even more resident than COVID or anything else of the pandemic, is the idea of social media as the monitor. And so the way people think about the world, you can't deny the way people talk about their culture now has been shaped by what they think is possible based on what they're being shown of the world. And if the algorithms, it's just so interesting that the Walker algorithm is the thing that this movie says is at the core of the monitor. And indeed, we find ourselves in a real world where we're talking about algorithms all the time and what content algorithms are surfacing to you. And so to me, what could be a more modern, applicable message than this movie that is literally showing you a technocrat that has taken advantage of a technology that was started by our hero with good intentions, but has been used to surface to the entire world only the most negative visions of the future. Because the goal is that negativity should drive people to want to make a change, but it's not. And so we're doubling down, tripling down on the negativity and, you know, if that doesn't sound like my Twitter feed, my Facebook feed, my YouTube feed, like when I start going down this path of negativity, I don't know what does. And it certainly can personally make it feel like certain things aren't possible because you're not seeing those possibilities reflected alongside everything else. So they seem less important or even less viable than the constant stream, the deluge of negativity that you're seeing both in the news and in people's reactions to it, because those create more interactions and the algorithm is explicitly designed to surface the content that creates controversy, that creates um, more people being interested in commenting on it. And you know, we can personally see that you tweet something critical and it gets a lot more engagement than tweeting something celebratory, right? And so there's part of it that is how the algorithm is exploiting things that are intuitively within us as humans, right? Uh, and uh, you, we are mentioned about how people react to this news. When I was researching this episode, I found this article that I will link to in the show notes from the BBC, which is aggregating a lot of real world research that has been done to this thought experiment. The idea of if you could know when you're going to die, would you want to? It cites a lot of research being done by different academics in regard to studies examining how people react to the concept of death. Obviously, they, they see that there is some variance based on culture. But one of the more interesting observations that the article pointed out that made me think of Tomorrowland was this idea that how a society reacts in aggregate is very different from how an individual reacts to news of their personal death. Because often, the idea of being given a life expectancy by your doctor, yes, can have a variability of reactions in different people based on their own personality. But in general, you get this appreciation of the time that you have left, right? While in a large group, if you push out the idea of world destruction, it leads to more xenophobia. It leads to more racism. It leads to more uh, putting up of walls towards the other, right? It leads to what Nick said at the end of the film about why Tomorrowland had to stay closed and stay protected 
because they're just going to do what they did there over here. Why invite them in? Right, exactly. And according to the real world researchers who are looking into, you know, sociological reactions to this, that is a predictable response at a population level. And so Nix theoretically should have seen that coming, but he sees it as a condemnation of humanity when he had this other idea of how they should react in his mind if everyone react as he the individual did. But as we're seeing, individual people react very differently than groups of people do. And so there is an interesting, you know, last week we were talking about individualism versus community-minded thinking. And so this is almost the other side of that coin, right? Where you can have Casey Newton, who has this innate inability to accept walls that are put in front of her. If she is Casey the Destructor, she's just going to blast through the wall and say, as long as I've still got a fighting chance, I am going to continue to try and find it. You know, she doesn't have access to the monitor in the same way Frank does. And so it does start to seem like in a certain way, and as we will see play out in the dramatic conclusion of the movie, if you apply it back to the real world, a question I've been asking myself is, is Tomorrowland saying we need to shut down Facebook? Is that the solution? I mean, this is the personal struggle that I think that we see individuals making all the time, right? Like, I know personally that in the wake of the pandemic, I had to change the news sources, people, ideas, things I was following because they were going down this monitor path, right? And I still feel like we're sort of there as we were talking about last week. The collective community and information that be can, that can be provided by this Well, let's just show people the worst and hope people make the better the decisions individually to make them better. That's not where we are, right? That's sort of this broken inverse optimism, right? I hope people make better decisions because I'm going to show them the worst thing that happens versus something like Casey's. I'm going to do the best. I like, can't we just change it? Can it just not be that inevitable thing? Why do you even have to tell me this to begin with? Okay, you say we've got 20 years of, of, you know, till climate change takes us over. Great. That's 20 years to change everything. You have this challenge of how do we do the next thing? How do we do our own sort of personal monitor destroy yet still remain connected to the information, you know, and people and things that we love and enjoy? And that's the rough part about what this last year showed me is that some of my friends are the monitor. They have been taken over by this. They have been taken over by this inevitability, doom and gloom, and this is where we are. In a sci-fi context, they can provide a level of metaphorical certainty that we don't have access to in the real world. So, you know, Frank, who built this algorithm, knows how revolutionary it is in the universe of the movie. But we have no level of confidence in how much information and how that information is being processed by the feeds that we plug ourselves into, because our monitors do not have access to reverse tachyons that are reverberating back from the future, right? So we are dealing with a more fallible data set. And so while in the real world, I think we could say the moral is we need to take stronger hold of those algorithms, have more transparent access to what is being surfaced and really examine our relationship with it. In this movie, you get more into a debate that I imagine we're going to touch a lot more deeply on when we reach the final episode. But this question of at what point can you reform something? And at what point do you have to burn it to the ground and start from scratch, which is obviously 
the resolution that they eventually come to. And the movie has received a fair bit of criticism for doing. You know, I, there was a lot of ideas out in the world that they needed a more nuanced approach to. Well, couldn't they in the movie show that the monitor was broadcasting good, hopeful ideas? And I would say that that actually closes off. If you were to do that at the end of the movie, I think it would close off a lot of the real world interpretation that we are now able to integrate with this movie and our relationship with it. You know, it would kind of seem like this really prescriptive path, whereas it's posing a big question and then it's throwing it to us and saying, you want utopia? Here's an identified problem that deals with both technology and humanity and how they interface. And we don't have the solution, but we know what the solution isn't. And the Nick's mentality isn't it. The way we deal with the monitor is not it. And in this fictional universe, it was something that grew too big to be allowed to continue to exist. But in our world, it's a lot fuzzier because it's not one thing. It's everywhere. It's media is not centralized. It is spread out among many things. And so the metaphor strains itself in that way. But certainly, I find myself thinking about how it is expressed in this movie more often than I ever could have predicted when we first saw it. Well, absolutely. And I think that when this film came, came out, you know, when we're talking five years ago, we were just at this period of time right before this became an issue, like very shortly before. And I think that, as I assume in a monitor style history of Tomorrowland, right, that the monitor broadcasting the negative results was not how it started and was not how it was turned on, right? It's just... And there are indeed some deleted scenes that expounded on the path to that kind of inevitability. So you're absolutely right about right, that. Right, but that's the same sort of Trojan ho horse that we developed, right? Oh, I followed my friends or new internet friends that I've discovered on a social media platform because I like what they said and I like what they shared. And now here we are three or four years later of all my friends tell me is, is that we can't do anything about climate change and all the fish in the ocean are going to die in 10 years. It's that again, that sort of Trojan horse algorithm of how do you get to that point? And I think the problem is, is that as we've seen, obviously, you know, this type of thing, and we'll, I'm sure we'll discuss it when the actual monitor gets blown up. But it's like we all kind of have to destroy our own monitors in a way as well. Aside from the societal implications, I also just feel like the Casey that we see here and the circumstances she's being placed into and the philosophical, ideological concepts that she's being pushed up against, there's just something really beautiful to me about what she represents. And this scene is the first time that we understand it. She's unflappable in many ways. And that unflappability is what makes her special. It is not that she was a prophesied chosen one, which is what a lot of people walked out of the movie somehow thinking the movie was trying to prop her up as, but it really just is in this commitment to free will. And in this commitment to even if you tell me that you with 100% confidence know something, I'm still not going to accept that I can't do anything because why would I stand idly by? It's that commitment to be an active, engaged participant in a process, regardless of what anyone is telling you is possible. And I guess just personally, I admire that because I do think 
I've too often been Frank Walker in my own life, placing too much emphasis on what seems inevitable, putting too much faith in the infallibility of these systems, this algorithm. I tend to do that. And so it's an aspirational thing for me to see a character like Casey, who is just willing to, against all odds and against all evidence at this point, believe in the power of her own free will and her own ability to change the future. And it might seem a bit Pollyanna-ish when I put it in those terms, but the science fiction and the philosophical implications of that are pretty vast. And I have always been drawn to stories, and thankfully there are so many throughout mythology and modern pop culture that struggle with that seemingly incompatible dance between free will and fate. And we see Casey in this scene taking a kind of stance that we see Neo take three movies to get to in the Matrix. You know, he finally understands that the problem is choice and that as the dialogue of that movie expresses, this is my fate because I choose it. And it's reconciling those paradoxes of our existence in the realm of space and time. At the end of the day, I am ultimately a causal determinist. I do think that we live in a causal universe. And I personally don't buy into the idea of quantum indeterminacy. And so I find myself trying to thread this needle every day. It's something I've struggled with since I was a teenager. The idea that ultimately I do believe in destiny and I do believe that things happen in a particular way because there is a cause for those things to happen. I'm not going to say that there's a reason for them to happen, but I do feel like A leads to B leads to C. The only way free will manifests itself is through our perception because we do not have access to the future. We do not know all of the determining factors. And so when you have a story like this that posits a science fiction concept of what if we did know, that has a lot of consequences throughout all of these ideas that the movie is playing with, saying, no, we actually do know. And it is, in a way, predictable on the parameters that we have set the monitor to be able to access because of the sci-fi concept of tachyons, which we'll tackle later. But Casey is already in this moment so herself. She is saying, even if you tell me, I'm going to choose not to believe you because I can't act as if I know because I don't. And I think for me, that's always how I've taken a great deal of solace from these stories of characters reconciling free will and fate is the idea that if there is a fate, I won't know it. And that even if choice is me coming to understand choices that outside of space and time have already been made, my perspective is still locked in parallel to that timeline. And I think in a very down to earth, character driven way, that is what Casey is saying here when she gives her response to Frank. And so there's this profundity that hit me like a ton of bricks the very first time I saw the scene where I'm like, this movie, it, 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 it's a joke for me to say this movie is my religion, but in a large way, this scene is describing how I think the universe actually works. And it's doing it through characters interacting with each other in a really subtle subtextual way. This is not on the surface here. And so everyone who walks out of Tomorrowland thinking, this movie is about what that Hugh Laurie said at the end. I'm like, no, that that is the topic. That is the topic of the movie. The themes are expressed through the decisions made by these characters, particularly through the decisions Frank, Casey, and Athena 
we'll all make together as we march towards the end of the movie. Who are you, kid? There's one last thing I'd like to talk about before we wrap this sequence up. In the years since Tomorrowland came up, I'm so relieved to say the pop culture community has had a dramatic reassessment of the work of Damon Lindelof. But at the time this movie came out, I think his reputation, earned or unearned, depending on which side of the debate you're on, really played into how people felt about this movie. And that was particularly frustrating for me because we had talked enough to both Damon and Brad Bird to know that certain conceptual complaints people had about the film were the result of contributions Brad Bird had made and not Damon Lindelof. Obviously, I think the two of them worked together in tandem beautifully. There was this perception that the guy who ruined Lost and the guy who ruined Prometheus had come in and written this movie with Brad Bird. And people loved the work of Brad Bird. People loved Iron Giant and Ratatouille. And they had heaped a lot of undue blame on Damon for collaborations that he had had with other people. I mean, anyone who digs in to how the writing of Prometheus actually went down will know that a lot of your list of complaints are Ridley Scott decisions and not Damon Lindelof decisions. And for me, I really loved the ending of Lost. So I came into this film already as a fan of the writing of Damon Lindelof. And so it has been very gratifying to see with The Leftovers and Watchmen being the two projects that immediately came after Tomorrowland for Damon, people's eyes are really opening to what his contributions tend to be, what type of writing he tends to offer. And I still stand by this scene as just one of the finest examples of his writing and his signature just bleeds right through for me. And I loved The Leftovers. I think it might be the greatest TV show ever made. I loved Watchmen. And certainly we should probably do a whole episode on the thematic parallels between Watchmen and Tomorrowland. Absolutely. Because we've got, we've got two Tomorrowland writers working on that show. You've yeah. got Jeff Jensen and Damon Lindelof. And I think the villain of Watchmen is so inextricably linked to what they were trying to do with Nyx. And to the larger audience, obviously, more successfully. But I do think it will be worth talking about how they fulfill different iterations on the same concept and even some striking visual parallels that come out of that. This is just my little love letter to Damon Lindelof and the public redemption that he has kind of had in the larger view of pop culture. I never really gave up on the guy, and I always thought Tomorrowland was a really great uh, expression of his creativity. But in this scene, perhaps more than any other, I think I just look to it and I say, there's something to aspire to for anyone who writes for the screen. It's difficult, right? Because I think the general sort of playing the the devil's advocate here, the general layperson was expecting a theme park land in a movie. And I don't think they were expecting the sort of deep concepts presented in this particular way. They're like, oh, we want to see the kid like go to the World's Fair and then go to Tomorrowland and then he's going to be there and there's going to be like rockets and like maybe they'll go to space and there's a kid and the kid's probably going to go to space too because all kids get to go to space in Tomorrowland, right? And so it's this very, it's this very like they wanted this saccharine sweet version of what Disney futurism is, but what they don't understand is in all of these concepts, we have seen Disney futurism 
go that same direction. Things like Alien Encounter and these other sort of like more adult things, you know, where the 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 future isn't just so bright and cheery, right? And now we've gotten to the point where we don't even want to call the park that was originally about the future. We don't want to put the word future in it anymore because we're too afraid what that means and it might get out of date and we want to sell people with properties of right now and whatever else. The Tomorrowland brand was already one of these extremely broken and difficult concepts to wrap to wrap around. And I think that Lindelof and Bird and whatever saw that, right? And we see that, and we'll get to this in a later episode, you know, when they go back to Tomorrowland and it's got that signature black goo all over it that you see in the real spaces. I mean, to the point where out here in California, they decided we don't want to paint it white anymore because it's too hard to maintain. A bright future is too hard to maintain. When I see this criticism of why is this this weird road movie that's trying to address ideas and Hugh Laurie is, you know, spouting words at me and like, you know, we're talking about the destruction of the earth is it's like this brand and what this was, was already like broken. It was not the Tomorrowland of the 50s or of the 60s or of the 70s, or of Epcot in the 80s. It was already a difficult thing that we had to tackle in a different way. We're facing that now, and I think that in all of these Disney concepts, we're seeing this huge evolution, right? Problematic attractions, problematic you know, themes and concepts that society is just now gripping with. And so you know, Tomorrowland kind of set up this thing, and then meanwhile, everybody is just like, well, why wasn't this movie what I thought it was going to be. And it's like, what did you want? Did you want the robot girl and the young girl like riding Space Mountain? (laughs) Right. And I would like to extend an olive branch to any of our listeners who did feel that way about the movie. Uh, First of all, I totally respect you having listened this far into our show. Um, But secondly, uh, it, it occurred to me the other day that a lot of what people are asking for when they say the types of things you're talking about I want to tell them as a recommendation, an honest, sincere recommendation, you're asking for Meet the Robinsons. That will give you almost exactly what you're asking for. And that's not a slight against Meet the Robinsons. It's just, I don't think this movie was ever trying to be that. Like, even in the earliest iterations of the story that did not have Frank, did not have Casey, and were much more ensemble casts across the world, it was never going to be that unexamined utopia it was always going to struggle with big ideas not necessarily these exact big ideas but that question of what happened to the future what happened to our concept of the future that was always the question and so if you want a movie that has a lot of screen time in a utopia there are other options out there uh it's just that was never going to be this and that's simply getting down to the problem of expectation and maybe the road to tomorrowland would have been a more accurate title than just Tomorrowland. Is that bad? So here we are after this massive, long, hypothetical, deep discussion. Frank says, who are you, kid? And Frank looks deeply at Casey in confusion and wonder and alarms ring, which for us signals the end of this segment and this episode. 
Our leads in this two-hander story have finally been flung together, and as Casey's questions start to be answered, the hard-headed Franks are only just beginning. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to drop us a line on Twitter at the Tomorrow Time, or send us an email to press at TomorrowlandTimes.com. That's P-R-E-S-S at TomorrowlandTimes.com. If you'd like to record us an audio message or complain about our view of the metaphysical universe, we'd love to hear any memories you might have of the first time you saw Tomorrowland or any other concepts that are resulting from the film, and we might just play it on a future episode. We want to thank everyone for continuing to take this walk through Tomorrowland with us. Join us next time as we observe Exiles Reunited. We'll be joining you as always from Tomorrowland Times, which we will keep alive as long as humanly possible to ensure that there is always a place where dreamers, dreamers can, can stick, stick together. together.